70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of Global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Bastian Würgenings. I come from Deutschland. Ich höre das deutschsprachige Programm von KBS World Radio für fünf Jahre. My name is Bastian Vergennings. I live in Germany and I've been tuning into KBS World Radio's German service for the past five years. It keeps me updated on news in Korea and was especially helpful when I was getting ready for my trip to Korea in 2022. Before KBS World Radio, Korea was just a country between Japan and North Korea to me. But as I tuned in, I became more and more curious about the country. When I visited Korea last year, I was finally able to see for myself everything I heard and read about on the radio and on the website. Now, KBS World Radio is definitely a part of my daily routine. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary. I hope you continue to air great programs for many decades to come. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's the 10th of January and welcome to our Tuesday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon j a n g w o The Democratic Party leader, Lee Jae-myung, has appeared for prosecutors questioning over allegations of third-party bribery. He denied any suspicions against him as he entered the prosecutor's office. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Concerns over a collapse in children's health care are growing in Korea due to a critical shortage of paediatricians. We'll find out more for our in-depth today. And coming up, we meet an American professor of Korean literature who's also the first person to bring Brazilian jiu-jitsu to South Korea. That's our Touch Space and Soul interview today. Let's begin Korea 24. <laughs> Main opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung appeared for prosecutors' questioning in an investigation into third-party bribery allegations. As he arrived at the district prosecutor's office on Tuesday morning, he was welcomed by hundreds of supporters as well as others denouncing him. He argued that the probe is politically motivated. This is what he had to say first. I understand that this summons for questioning is a trap set by the prosecution. I never wanted any privilege nor done anything wrong, and there is no reason for me to evade this. I will stand up against the probe. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, our KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chet joins us in the studio now. Daniel, hello. Hello, j a n g Good to be here with you again. So the DP chief maintained his innocence on the allegation. He also accused the attack by prosecutors as being politically motivated. 
That's right. Appearing at the Songnam branch of the Suwon District Prosecutor's Office Tuesday morning, he denied any suspicions against him. From reporters, supporters to angry civic groups, some 500 people crowded the area, so it took some 15 minutes to move just around 100 meters forward, and it will likely be a very long session for him, which could last through the night. Investigators are probing him on bribery suspicions related to corporate sponsorship of the professional football team Sangnam FC between 2014 and 2016. That was when he was serving as the mayor of the city that owns the club. Prosecutors believe the financial contributions totaling over 16 billion won or nearly $13 million were made by Tucson Group, Naver Corporation and four others in the name of advertising expenses in return for ease approval of construction and other business projects in the city. Let's hear what he had to say to reporters. I ask you to be the judge. Should I be blamed for attracting corporations to secure more taxes and create jobs? Should I be blamed along with the staff of the Songnam Citizens Football Team, who arranged advertisements and saved taxpayer money? How could local governments attract companies and improve the quality of life in the cities if the prosecution wields its power like this? He is specifically suspected of changing the zoning designation of a 9,900-square-meter parcel of land owned by Tucson located in Bundang, Songnam, in return for the company's sponsorship. The zoning change allowed Tucson to make immense profits. Back in September, prosecutors indicted a former CEO of Tucson Engineering and Construction and a city official of Songnam in connection with alleged corruption involving E. Prosecutors have reportedly secured testimonies from corporate officials that the city called for financial contributions. While the prosecution seeks to prove E was involved in arranging third-party bribery for his own political gain, E contends that the club belongs to the city and all corporate contributions were for the benefit of the city. Outside of the Sangnam FC probe, E is also marred in the so-called Daejangdong scandal, in which he is suspected to have helped an asset management company join a land development project in Sangnam and make enormous investment profits. Rival political parties clashed over the prosecution's summons of uh, DP leader Lee Jae-myung. What have they been saying? Well, at a party meeting on Tuesday, ruling people, Power Party floor leader Chuo Young questioned why the DP has taken exhaustive efforts to protect Lee over something he did as an individual when he was the Songnam mayor. The floor leader stressed the opposition will not be able to block the prosecution's investigation with its majority in parliament. DP floor leader Park Hong-gun slammed the prosecution for summoning the leader of the main opposition, something that hasn't been done. It's considered the first time in history. Park accused the unit administration of attempting to oppress the opposition, saying that the third-party bribery case surrounding the Sangnam Football Club was closed without charges filed against Yi following a police probe that spanned over three years. Yes, we'll continue to watch developments over this case and leave that there for today. Moving on, President Yoon sung yeol will embark on his first overseas trip of the new year. He heads to the United Arab Emirates and Switzerland from January 14th to the 21st. So can you tell us a bit more about his schedule? Well, in Tuesday's press briefing, National Security Advisor Kim Jong-un announced the eight-day itinerary. It begins with a state visit to the UAE from Saturday to Tuesday at the invitation of President Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan, the first state visit by a South Korean leader to the Arab nation since the two sides forged diplomatic ties back in 1980. This will include a summit with the UAE leader and a visit to the Korea-built Baraka nuclear energy plant. Multiple MOUs are expected to be signed as an economic delegation comprising 100 companies will accompany Yoon to the UAE. He is seeking to significantly strengthen cooperation with the UAE on various industrial areas. 
also mulling ways to cooperate with the UAE's sovereign wealth funds. He will then travel to Switzerland on Tuesday to meet with South Korean residents in Zurich before traveling to Davos for the World Economic Forum as the first South Korean president to attend since Park Geun-hye in 2014. On Wednesday, Yoon will meet with CEOs of major global companies, and on Thursday he will give a special speech proposing cross-border cooperation to fight the economic crisis, measures of international cooperation and solidarity regarding global supply chains, clean energy transformation and digital order, to name a few. A host of meetings and possibly summits with other participating global leaders are also expected to be arranged. He is also scheduled to attend an event promoting South Korea's bid to host the 2030 World Expo, as well as a visit to the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. In other diplomatic news, China's new foreign minister, Qin Gang, expressed concerns over South Korea's tightened quarantine measures on travellers from China during his first phone talks with Seoul's top diplomat. Can you tell us more? Well, in a post about the phone or updated on his website on Tuesday, the Chinese foreign ministry made the unusual move of revealing that its minister expressed such concerns in the first meet and greet between the two. The Qing conveyed Beijing's concerns over the entry restrictions and expressed hopes that South Korea will assume an objective and science-based attitude. Seoul's FM Park Jin explained to his counterpart that the measures are based on scientific grounds. As the Chinese foreign ministry's former spokesperson, Qin was known for his sharp remarks representing his country's hardline views. Beijing has vowed to retaliate with corresponding measures against countries that have stepped up quarantine measures for incoming visitors from China, uh, such as Seoul's mandate requiring COVID-19 testing both before and boarding after the arrival, as well as the restricted issuance of short-term visas. And in fact, China has decided to strengthen its quarantine measure on those arriving from South Korea in an apparent retaliation over uh, similar measures uh, we've mentioned there. So the latest includes suspension of short-term visa service for South Koreans. China's embassy said the country plans to adjust the measure in accordance with the situation in which South Korea cancelled its discriminatory entry restrictions against China. That's coming from the Chinese side. The South Korean government expressed regret over the move. A senior South Korean foreign ministry official relayed the stance in a meeting with reporters on Tuesday. So delivered its position to Beijing through a diplomatic channel, and Ministry spokesperson Im Soo-suk said Seoul has been communicating and sharing relevant information with China as well as the international community transparently. The government will deliver the stance once again while continuing close communication with China over the matter, so discussions will continue. In other news, a North Korean defectors group plans to fly anti-Pyongyang leaflets across the border soon using unmanned aerial vehicles. This comes despite concerns being raised about such activities. Right, this happened on Monday. A Park Sang-hak, head of the Fighters for Free North Korea, told Yonhap News that preparations are being made to fly drones to send leaflets up north as soon as possible. He explained, unlike giant plastic balloons, drones are not affected by the wind and can drop the leaflets at target locations with pinpoint accuracy. Park claimed his group had flown a drone carrying leaflets to Pyongyang before, in April 2020. But South Korea's Unification Ministry has requested that the group refrain from sending anti-Pyongyang leaflets across the border. That's right. An official from the ministry told the press the group must desist leaflet activity in consideration of existing laws and the sensitivity of inter-Korean relations, as well as public safety. The existing laws stipulate the dissemination of anti-Pyongyang leaflets carries a penalty of up to three years in prison or a maximum fine of 30 million won. But... 
if Seoul suspends the two Korea's 2018 tension-diffusing military agreement in response to further provocations by Pyongyang, including an airspace violation, which we witnessed a few days ago, leaflet activities would no longer be subject to legal punishment. Turning back to the local political scene, former ruling People Power Party lawmaker Na Young-won has offered to resign as head of the Presidential Committee on Aging Society and Population Policy. The decision comes amid a policy dispute with the top office. So can you fill us in? Well, according to her aides on Tuesday, Na conveyed her intent to Presidential Chief of Staff Kim Dae-gi, noting that she had caused concern for the South Korean leader. The offer to resign follows a divergence with the top office with her promotion of a policy similar to one in Hungary that offers loan incentives tied to marriage and childbirth in an effort to boost birth rate. A proposal that runs contrary or counter to the Yoon administration's policy plans. The resignation comes just three months after her appointment by Yoon. Some speculate she is looking to run for the PPP chair. Her office said a decision has not yet been made. It was earlier expected that she may declare her bid around the Lunar New Year holiday, but with the latest feud with the top office, the date could be moved up. The PPP plans to pick a new leader during its convention on March 8th. Meanwhile, the police are investigating a consulting firm believed to be in control of over 200 multiplex and studio apartment units in Weston's Hole. The company is believed to be at the centre of a lump sum chunse rental scandal. Can you tell us more? Well, the National Police Agency Commissioner Yunigun pledged to sternly investigate the fraud case during a meeting with reporters on Monday. He anticipates more cases similar to this one will emerge. Last week, police filed for an arrest warrant against a key figure at a consulting firm. The prosecution saw the court-issued warrant. The owner of 240 housing units in Seoul's Gangseo and Yangcheon districts, surname Jung, was found dead on Jeju Island in 2021, causing a massive setback in the recovery of deposits by tenants who had not subscribe to the deposit return guarantee insurance. The police have booked five people in a separate case involving another landlord dubbed the Villa King, with 1,139 units of multiplex housing and studio apartments, who was found dead without returning rental deposits to his tenants. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. South Korea is facing a shortage of paediatricians. According to the Korean Hospital Association, there were a total of 201 residency positions open for aspiring paediatricians this year, but only 33 people applied. Last month, Kachan University Kil Medical Center in Incheon, one of the nation's five largest medical institutions, announced that it will temporarily suspend its hospitalization services for paediatric patients due to a lack of doctors. To learn more about this issue and possible solution, we're joined on the line by Clinical Associate Professor Kang Hyun-mi from the Department of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the Catholic University of Korea Seoul, St. Mary's Hospital. Professor Kang, hello and thank you for your time today. Oh, hello. Thank you for inviting me back. Yes, I gave a couple of statistics at the beginning, but can you describe for us how serious the shortage of pediatricians is in South Korea currently. All right, so um, I'll explain it to you in a simple way. 
Every year, residents take the board exams to become a professional in the area that they receive training for the past three or four years, depending on the specialty. For pediatricians, it's four years. So last year in 2022, 101% um, took the exam. So we were okay until last year in terms of the amount of pediatricians coming into the field and offering their medical services. However, starting this year, only 94.2% are taking the exam, which means we're 6% short. Next year, we'll be 26% short, and in 2025, we'll be 62% short. Now, in 2026, we're going to be 85% short, meaning only about 30 pediatricians or pediatric specialists will be available in 2026. Now, um, there have been mentions about an open run, and already we are seeing this to be true. For example, on Saturdays, the pediatric clinic opens at 9 o'clock. However, when you get there 10 minutes early at 8.50, there's already a three-hour waiting line. And in some instances, online reservations are closed within one minute. Right, so when you say open run, you're talking about how uh, patients, uh, parents, are lining up and... Uh, to get to hospitals as quick as they can because it's a first-come, first-served basis, essentially. That's right. That's right. Okay, and are you seeing the situation in your hospital as well? How does, how are you seeing in your hospital? Um, well, until now, because we are a tertiary referral hospital, um, we're not seeing so much of that yet. Um, however, you know, um, amongst um, other pediatricians that I am close to, you know, they're seeing a higher number of reservations even before their clinic opens, uh, and which, which is causing a big problem because, you know, if there is a serious or critically ill patient, their reservation is being pushed back, so they're not receiving the care that they need on time. Right. It's the online fight almost uh, to get uh, appointments uh, is extreme nowadays i'm getting reports of uh, it's almost like trying to buy a ticket for uh, some sort of concert or something it is a various serious situation indeed uh, but then how did it get to this point what factors have led to the shrinking pediatric care in south korea um i think it's deeply rooted in the fact that south korea has been seeing a sharp and worsening decline in the birth rate and as it was published in the national Statistics statistical office that a newlywed couple only has 0.66 children, meaning, you know, four adults to one child ratio. Um, but also, I think um, it comes to being reimbursed for the amount of work that you do, which takes into the account the number of years and money it took to get you there, which includes, you know, six years of medical school, one year of internship, four years of residency, and often two years of fellowship, which is 13 years. You know, but sadly, you know, pediatricians are not feeling that they're being reimbursed enough. And also, you know, there's much fewer expensive procedures relative performed by pediatric specialists compared to adult specialists. And also the prevailing reimbursement scheme for medical services do not take into account the extra time pediatric specialists spend with the young patients to communicate effectively, provide reassurance, you know, assuage their fears, check their development and mental health. Right, so decline in birth rate perhaps uh, contributing to uh, the lack of popularity that people, uh, that doctors are seeing that perhaps there's a less of a future in this field. And, but then uh, couple that with the amount of work you're saying compared to uh, the, I guess, essentially the profits that you can make being a... Uh, right. right. 
Okay, since wh- how long has this been going on? Since when did uh, pediatrics become unpopular? Well, it's been up and down for, you know, the past few years. But I think, um, you know, starting in 2018, that's when the, the, um, the application for the pediatric residency actually fell and started falling. And then since then, we've seen such a sharp decline, you know, much faster than any other um, medical board profe- uh, residency that we've seen so far. Hmm. So is this shortage of pediatricians a unique problem to South Korea? Uh, How does it compare to other countries at the moment? Well, I would say the shortage to this degree, yes, it is unique to Korea. But actually, overall, you know, over the past five years, the number of medical students pursuing a career in pediatrics has declined even in the United States. You know, as um, even as pediatric positions um, available has increased, and um, it has it been said that it's the only major medical discipline experiencing this um, shortage. And I quote from an article from Healthcare Topics published by um, Health Capital Consultants. You know, pediatricians are not able to bill at a rate that captures the true time and effort necessary to provide um, care. And another article from Florida reports that, you know, the country is facing a shortage of up to 124,000 pediatric specialists um, within the next 10 years. So it's not only a problem in Korea, but it actually is a problem globally. Right, but perhaps it is uh, more acute to Korea, as you said. Uh, What medical specialties are more popular in Korea these days and why? Um, this year, the specialties that had the highest rate of application was ophthalmology, followed by plastic surgery, rehabilitation medicine, orthopedics, and dermatology. And, you know, the most um, likely reason being the amount of reimbursement you're getting for the medical services, so basically, you know, medical costs, followed by lifestyle, meaning, you know, less emergencies and critical patients that need on-duty care, so less working hours, and stability of the income. So it all comes down to you know, those three things, basically. Right. And you gave us a little bit of statistics about how quickly this is happening. How soon do you expect to see perhaps the collapse of the uh, children's medical care in South Korea? Um, I think, you know, before COVID-19, we didn't expect to see it this soon. But if the government doesn't, you know, make radical changes very, very soon, we're going to be seeing seeing medical care for childcare collapse much faster. And, you know, by this, I mean not many hospitals being able to care for severe or critically ill children. Also, you know, children not being able to receive um, emergency care just because there are no pediatricians on duty in the emergency rooms, mm. you know, children's, children having to wait for reservations or having to wait hours at clinics for milder diseases and, you know, not being able to receive surgical, surgical care that they need just because there are no pediatricians or pediatric surgeons available. Right. The concern is that this could uh, lead to some tra- terrible and tragic uh, consequences indeed. So you mentioned how you think perhaps the government needs to step in uh, how has the government responded so far? What measures do you think the government should take to try and tackle this issue then? Okay, so I believe that the government does see um, that this is a major problem and it's going to actually affect children in Korea um, very soon. So 
basically the ultimate solution is to provide pediatricians with a stable environment, um, you know, where their medical services are reimbursed no matter how low the birth rate is declining. Now, measures to get to this is actually very complicated, and I believe the government has been working on solutions to provide primary local pediatricians with some sort of stable reimbursement. And also, they have been um, providing many options for keeping large hospitals reimbursed for the financial losses for just keeping up their you know, huge medical centers running. However, there is still a disagreement and a large gap between the government and what pediatricians really truly believe should be the measures taken to tackle this issue, mm. just because you know the goals and aims are very different and because there's just so many other considerations that each side deems important. Right, for large hospitals, I guess that could uh, apply, but... Uh Korea, there's also a lot of private clinics as well. And we're seeing that uh, with uh, the situation, a lot of private clinics are closing as well, right? That's right. Uh, what can be done to address that issue? I think that the government needs to, you know, spend, um, raise the medical service fee for those local clinics because, you know, these clinics are not, you know, they're not... Um, uh, seeing a lot of reimbursement for expensive procedures just because there um, are none. Um, it's the characteristic of pediatric specialty where, you know, you're not having expensive medical procedures to do on children. So basically then in order to keep, you know, these um, local clinics running, you need to raise the medical service fee for each child that comes to see and, to, you know, get medical care. Mm. And is the government stepping in probably the only solution to fix this at the moment? Um, the government is trying to step in, but I think that, you know, um, you know, it takes a lot of many different um, considerations to raise the medical service fee cost, you know, just because, um, you know, you're, the government is, you know, not trying to um, give all just raise the entire medical service fee for all people in Korea. Mm. Uh -huh. And so in order to just do it for the children, I think, you know, they're considering many different options rather than just, you know, increasing the, the consultant fee or the medical fee just for children. Right, so it looks like it could be a complicated situation to try and resolve it, uh, but it does seem like something will need to be done to address this trend before we see some uh, terrible consequences, as uh, we mentioned earlier. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Kang Hyun-mi from the Catholic University of Korea, Seoul St. Mary's Hospital. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 1.12 points, or 0.05% on Tuesday, closing the day at 2,351.31. The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, however, losing 5.16 points, or 0.74%, to close the day at 696.05. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 1.21 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,244.71. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, a daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. 
And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio now to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you. Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? First, we'll start the segment with the latest update on the defunct U.S. satellite's return to Earth. Next, we'll talk about naturalized Russian skater Victor Ahn preparing for a comeback in South Korea. And we'll end today's segment with a story of police in Incheon saving a woman from a potentially dangerous situation. Okay, so for our first story, it's one we covered briefly in news briefing yesterday, but uh, can you tell us more? Right. The U.S. Earth Observation Satellite, called ERBS, which was predicted to pass over the Korean Peninsula, completely crashed into the sea near Alaska. According to the Ministry of Science and ICT, the U.S. Space Force announced that the ERBS finally crashed at around 1.04 p.m. on Monday near the Bering Sea southwest of Alaska. The ministry explained that the final crash site was on the path predicted by the Korea Astronomy and Space Science Institute, a domestic space environment monitoring agency. The ministry previously announced on Monday that the Korean Peninsula was included in the range of predictions for the fall, according to the trajectory analysis. Then at 7 a.m. on the same day, a warning was issued. Yes, many in Korea received an emergency alert uh, text message on Monday morning, one I think that uh, we all perhaps didn't really think we would ever receive this kind of text message, but uh, it caused people to become concerned, of course. That's right. At around 11.30 a.m., an emergency alert was sent to the public saying, quote, there is a possibility that some debris from an American satellite may crash near the Korean Peninsula between 12.20 and 13.20 today, end quote, and asked people to remain cautious when going outside. However, as NASA said, the probability of the ERBS causing damage to anyone on Earth is very low, approximately one in 9,400. Right, so they were right. Thankfully, the satellite just fell into uh, open water without anyone getting hurt. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this satellite and why it fell all of a sudden? The ERBS, which was first put into the orbit in 1984, was sent on a decades-long mission to space to study how the Earth absorbed and emitted solar energy. The original mission period was two years, but the satellite observed the Earth's atmosphere for 21 years until it re- re- retired in 2005. During that time, it was found that the ozone layer, which protects life on Earth by blocking solar ultraviolet rays in the stratosphere, is gradually fading. Through this, it contributed to the signing of the Montreal Protocol in 1987, which regulates ozone-depleting substances. The ERBS then continued orbiting Earth, gradually drawing closer to the planet due to its gravitational pull, before re-entering the atmosphere and crashing that day. Yes, so it fulfilled its mission. It's back now on Earth. Thankfully, as Mm -hmm. we said, no one was hurt. Right. Uh, I guess that is the most important aspect. Yes, yes. Okay, let's move on to the next story. What do you have for us? The short track speed skating star Victor Ahn, formerly known as Ahn Hyun-soo, is preparing for a comeback in South Korea 12 years after becoming a Russian citizen. According to the ice skating circles on Monday, Ahn re- recently applied for a coaching position at his former team's Hongnam City, where Choi Min-jung, the woman's three-time Olympic champion skater, is actively playing. Last month, Songnam City decided not to renew coach Son Sewan's contract and started open recruitment for the position. And it was found that Ahn applied. 
Right, so Anne was a hugely talented skater, one of the best during his time, right. but also a controversial one. Can you mm-hmm. tell us some more about him to our listeners who might not be familiar? Yes, so he was an ice skating star back in the early 2000s. He clinched five world titles from 2003 to 2007 and won three golds at the Turin Winter Olympics in 2006, representing South Korea. However, after failing to be selected for the Korean team for the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, and after his team, Songnam City, disbanded following financial problems in 2011. He gave up his Korean nationality and acquired Russian citizenship. And as a Russian national, he participated in the 2014 Sochi Olympics and staged a comeback by winning three gold medals. And in 2019, he was offered a coaching position in the Russian national team with an annual salary of 360 million won, which is about $290,000. But he declined and left for China in 2020. And while he was coaching the Chinese team, the team won four medals, including two gold, one silver, and one bronze uh, at the Beijing 2022 Olympic Games. He later returned to South Korea to stay with his family. Okay, so it seems he wants to return to Team Korea in a coaching role now. Uh, When will we know if he gets the job or not? The city government is expected to announce the final decision after interviewing applicants this month. A Songnam City official emphasized that the hiring process will be fair. Yes, considering his history, it'll be interesting to see whether he is welcomed back with open arms. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if he is, I'm sure there will be much he can offer uh, Team Korea skating teams as well. Right. Okay, let's move on to our final story. What else has been trending today? Police saved the day once again, <laughs> thanks to an emergency dispatcher's good judgment. According to Incheon Police Agency, a call was received at around 8.10 a.m. on January 5th. When the dispatcher picked up the phone, the caller remained silent. A faint sound of a man and woman fighting with the man yelling and swearing could be heard. Wow, okay. So I imagine that must have been hard for them to uh, perhaps grasp what was happening on the other end of the line Mm -hmm. uh, with the caller remaining silent. How did the police react then? So even though the caller did not say anything to specify the situation they were in, the police immediately tracked the location and the call was confirmed to be coming from an office tail in the Incheon area. As officers were dispatched, the police called back to see if they were okay. A woman answered the phone and said she wanted to cancel the report, but it was clearly noticeable that she had been crying. When officers arrived at the scene, a young man greeted them at the door and acted like everything was fine. But the woman behind the man sent an SOS signal to the police, mouthing, please save me. So the officers forcefully entered the premises and brought the woman out of the house. And as expected, it was dating violence. The man was the perpetrator and the woman was the victim. The police confirmed that the man assaulted his ex-girlfriend by physically threatening her with with a knife, and he was immediately arrested at the scene. Well, that's terrible to hear, of course, but thankfully she was able to make the call. And even more thankfully, the dispatcher responded well to the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there guidelines usually to follow for these kinds of situations? There is, actually. When a caller goes silent, officers are trained not to repeatedly ask hello, and they don't hang up right away. It's up to the dispatcher in the control room to to determine if the situation is dangerous. If it is deemed to be an urgent situation with the sound of an argument or something breaking, the police track the location and mobilize nearby patrol cars. For callers that are in a situation where they can't say anything, they should 
switch to the number pad and double tap any number, mm. then the police will send a link to a system called Visible 112. And if the caller clicks on that link, the situation can be shown like a video call. The police will respond even if the caller does not answer their phone or if they cancel the report due to the possibility that the victim was forced to by the perpetrator. So make sure to call 119 in any case of emergencies. Right. I think that's a very useful tip uh, to tap any number uh, twice, even if you are in a situation where you cannot talk to right. bring up uh, this system. Mm-hmm. Hopefully the dispatcher will get the message yeah. as well. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll talk to you again soon. I'll see you soon. Our guest today for Tush Basin's Hall is an American professor of Korean and comparative literature at Yonsei University's Underwood International College. But he's also known as the first person to introduce Brazilian jiu-jitsu to South Korea in the late 1990s. There are now over 50 jiu-jitsu academies in Korea under his name. And I'm delighted to say that Professor John Frankel joins us now in the studio to tell us more about both his academic and martial arts story. Professor Frankel, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, understand, okay, uh, that you were born in California in the United States. Correct. Uh, but you ended up majoring in uh, East Asian languages in college, yes. and now you're a professor of Korean literature in Korea. Can you tell us a bit more about that journey, how you became interested in uh, the Korean language and Korean literature? Yeah, so it, a series of coincidences, really. I had no plan. I was an English literature major when I began, and I uh, had to take any foreign language, really any foreign language, uh, just for a year to graduate. And um, I'd had Spanish in high school, and being from California, Spanish is less a foreign language. It's more like a second language. And I wanted something a little more distant, and a lot of, you know, I, I, I got a lot of recommendations, but Korean kept coming up. So I took mm. Korean my freshman year in college. I took it pass-fail because I did not want it to adversely affect my GPA. <laughs> I had no intention of continuing. Uh, but I liked it enough to where the second semester I took it for a grade. Um, and then I decided to take it for one more year, although I was finished with my requirement. And what happened during my second year was uh, two things. Uh, Berkeley started their exchange program with Yonsei the following year. Mm. So I decided that I might come here for a year. And I couldn't get any of my English major requirements because the seniors and juniors who had dropped out of sciences were taking those sophomore <laughs> courses and they had priority. So at that point, I, I changed my major. Right. So it's part, as you said, luck, uh, part uh, just general interest. Uh, but then when did you find your uh, passion for Korean literature? I didn't have a cl- So I was just taking the language and I certainly didn't have enough language skills to deal with literature for the first, you know, two or mm. three years. And I think during my third year, um, I took a course in Korean literature, um, mostly in translation, but I could do some rudimentary reading in, in Korean after two and a half, three years of, of instruction. And I, I liked it. But still, uh, when I when I finally graduated, I it wasn't literature. I mean, you're just really just learning the language at that point. You don't mm. have enough skills to, to go deep into the literature. Yeah. Mm. I didn't, I didn't, so I didn't really major in literature until I did my MA and PhD. Okay, so uh, perhaps uh, do you remember the first work of Korean literature that you 
perhaps not encountered, but the fact that one you appreciated. Yeah, they, uh, and it's funny because they're they're still the ones that I like most. It, it was the short stories from the 1920s and 1930s, you know, the colonial period short stories, which really struck me. And um, I'm working more on essays now, but still from the 30s, yeah. Right. I also read that your area of interest includes poems of Ishan. Not poems, actually. So Ishan okay. is famous for his poems, but I... I won't say I dislike his poems, but I, I, I prefer his essays, and I find his essays from, from my work more rewarding. What about his essays? Uh, you in? Because unlike the poems, which seem very cryptic to me, almost like his own personal code, uh, the essays are, are pretty good records. Of course, they're not, they're not perfect historical documents, but they're pretty good records of a lot of what was going on in Korean society, or at least Isang's part of Korean society in, in the 30s, which interests me very much. Right. And how would you compare it, what you were reading to perhaps uh, the kind of uh, readings that you, you were having uh, from Western uh, writers? So Isang, I, it's not Korea versus the West. It's Isang versus the world because he's so <laughs> idiosyncratic. But having I mean, so that's one thing mm. to think about. It's not really Korean with him. It's not so much Korean literature versus American or British or anything else. So he's very unique, which mm. I like. But at the same time, he I think he was consciously and deliberately a modernist, and he was definitely um, influenced by European and maybe to to slightly lesser extent, especially through Hollywood movies, um, American modernism. And so it's it's a nice hybrid of 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 a very peculiar and idiosyncratic writer on the one hand, but one who's also you know working in a deliberately sort of working in a, in a certain I won't say a field, but mm. a kind of a stream of modernism at the time. So you've been interested in Korean writers, Korean literature for a long time, uh, back from when there were perhaps not a lot of works that were even available in English uh, yeah. at the time. Uh, things have now changed quite a lot, hasn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The one thing that hasn't changed or hasn't changed quite as, as rapidly or as structurally is uh, there, there certainly are more works available and there's certainly better translations and more interest. But... They tend still, and this was always the case, but they still tend to be um, based on either the the translator's preference um, or what's popular today, rather right. than sort of going back and really um, trying to structure what, what what are the most important works from the tens and then the twenties and then the thirties. It's more, hey, I really like this author or this work, and and it's not bad at all. Sure, but it's a bit scattered still. So you perhaps prefer to see uh, more classical works uh, that can be translated still, yeah, that might be explored by the, the Western world. Right. I mean, it's my bias, though, because I'm doing this academically. I realize that in terms of, you know, popular literature or what may eventually be made into a movie or a Netflix uh, series or whatever, that's not really important. So I, I, I totally understand my positionality as a as a professor and an academic, and it doesn't really suit capitalism or <laughs> the average people's taste. So I'm not demanding sure. that at all. Yeah. Okay, let's shift gears a bit now because we can't invite you to the show and not talk about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as you are known as the person to have brought the martial yeah. art to uh, South Korea. In fact, there are now over 50 John Frankel Jiu-Jitsu academies across the country. How did you discover the martial art and what made you want to bring it to Korea. Yeah, so so I didn't want to bring it so much up. So I'm a lifelong martial artist. I was just fascinated since I was a little kid. I don't know exactly why, although I, I grew up 
in a family of four boys, so there was a lot of fighting going on. So that might be part of it. <laughs> but none of my other brothers really got into it. They dabbled a little bit. Um, and when I first experienced jujitsu, it was actually coming back from my second trip to Korea. A friend mm. was in Hawaii. I stopped there in 1989. He showed me some of it. He was just a beginner. But I, I could see how effective it was, and I was hooked uh, from, them, from then on. As far as wanting to bring it to Korea, it wasn't that. It was that in 99, you know, 10 years later, I was a brown belt. I had finished all my coursework and examinations for my PhD, and I was coming back to Korea to do a year of, of dissertation research. And there was no way that I, I was so addicted. I mean, I was not going to stop training, and there was no one to train with. So somewhat selfishly, I, I started a, a small club just to um, create people good enough to train with. And, and then it, it took off from there. Right. Creating that small club initially, was it difficult? No, to, no, no. Because it was on the, Uf, the UFC was, had right. come out a, a couple of years before. And, and so there was no access to it. But there were Koreans, particularly those who were doing like judo or hapkido, who were like, wow, I really want to try this. But there's no one really doing it. And then, mm. so when I showed up, it, 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 it was, I mean, I'm not sure how quickly I didn't try to. I'm not sure how quickly I could have built a successful commercial school like a lot of my students have today. I don't think it was that popular. But in terms of just having a club and, and getting people together, there were always a few people interested. Yeah. What is it about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that makes it special, that made you want to share sure. with people and for people here in Korea uh, to want to try it? Yeah, so for, for me, as a lifelong martial artist, it was the almost complete, you know, I, nothing's perfect, you know, but, but almost perfect lack of a gap between theory and practice. And then the lack of a gap between how you practice and how you actually use it in a tournament or a fight or a self-defense situation. Every martial art I had done up till then had a very sort of flashy, good looking practice. And then they either couldn't fight or when they fought, it looked like bad kickboxing and just a huge gulf between practice and reality. And, and jiu-jitsu really is seamless. And that, that was very attractive to me. How did it feel to watch your academies flourish like it? It must be quite rewarding to see uh, the seed you've sown grow and flourish like it has. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, like, the, like anything, you know, a family or whatever, the bigger it gets, the more potential there is for friction and things like that. But in general, and, and a lot of people don't know this, this is Thank you for asking. I don't have a financial interest in any of those academies. They use my name because I'm their teacher, and and that's nice. They respect mm. me, and I, and I respect them. But they're all owned by individual. I don't think we have one or two academies owned by Korean Americans, mm. uh, mostly by just Korean Koreans. Um, and um, I will come in and do seminars and and things like that. But or they will come and train with me. But uh, yeah, I. I Although my name is on the sign, I have no, uh, I have no ownership or financial interest in any of those academies. Sure, but your name is definitely oh, yeah. in the uh, history of uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Korea. It, it is quite a jarring combination, uh, being a professor of Korean literature and also mm. uh, being a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu master on, on one hand. Uh, even in this interview, the... the the shift we went from uh, one topic to the other yeah. was quite jarring. Is Do you feel that? Do you have any uh, sort of uh, clash? It's, it's in, seamless in... for me because I've always been interested in both, but uh, it does put a lot of people off. Um, what I would say is there's a, there's a sacrifice. Like I will never be the best person at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, nor will I be the best academic. And a lot of people who are more one-dimensional, it bothers them. Like you could be so much better as a professor if you just quit all physical activity or 
if you would just quit that professor stuff, mm. you could be a jujitsu world champion. But for me, balance is much more important. Do they cross over it anyway? Oh, I example? mean, they're both. I mean, you know, jujitsu is very um, cerebral if you're doing it right. Mm. Um, and then as far as the, the other way, so that's, that's academics to jujitsu, jujitsu academics. I think it could be jujitsu or yoga or anything that's really good for your health. I mean, part of being a professor is the ability to sit for long periods of time and concentrate. And if, if your back hurts or your head hurts or, you know, you're tired all the time, that's hard to do. I mean, people think it's all in your brain. I mean, in a sense, a lot of that is in your brain, but it's very physical. I mean, your brain is housed in your body. So, I mean, if, if your body's failing you, it's hard to do academic work as well. Have you ever crossed your, perhaps, a students from one to the other? For example, a Korean literature student who uh, went on to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu or the Yonsei, other around? I don't know about Korean literature, but Yonsei students will often... There, there's, a, there's a club, uh, a joint, like Yonsei Iwa Club. Mm. Um, and I think they train at Yonsei still. And, and so, like, a lot of Yonsei students will start there. And, you know, if they don't... If they're not that interested, that's very... I don't think... They, they pay almost nothing, a little association sure. fee. And they don't train that much. But then if they are very interested from there, they can go to a, a school and train every day. So, I mean, I, I don't know about anyone directly through my influence, but it happens all the time. I mean, these, these Yonsei students know that I'm kind of... I mean, everything started at, at a Yonsei club. And so, mm. so the Yonsei club has that kind of history. Yeah. So the students perhaps don't look at you uh, funny. You're Korean literature students there, knowing that uh, you're a jiu-jitsu master as well. Half of them know, I think. The ones who are interested enough to Google me, they all know. And the ones who are just kind of like, oh, this is a requirement. I just have to go take it. I don't even know who the teacher is. They might not know. <laughs> well, it's been fascinating to learn about your story. And it really uh, seems like you have perhaps uh, acted as an effective bridge between both Korean and Western cultures through your uh, double passion. What's uh, next for you? What are your plans for uh, 2023 and beyond as well? Yeah, so we... I actually... Um, sort of ceased all official jiu-jitsu activities for three years because of COVID. So, I mean, we we kept training, but for, for one year, three years ago, I said, look, there's no requirement for seminars, no requirement mm -hmm. for training. And then I extended that to two years because it was still bad. And then I extended it for three years and we, we've started that again. So I really don't know. It, we're just starting to like post-COVID ramping back up, but, but a lot of gyms were uh, opened in mm -hmm. those three years. So I I, I'm getting the feeling I'll have a much more active sort of seminar schedule. Uh, now we have a lot more uh, gyms outside of Seoul as well. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. It's always I'm, I schedule for the weekends when I'm not when I'm not teaching at Yonsei, and it's it's it's, it's a good little break. Sure. Well, uh, I'm sure your students will be glad to see you back out uh, there uh, teaching again. We really appreciate your time today, and thank you for sharing the story with us. We've been talking to Professor John Frankel. Yeah. Thank you again, and we hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for having me. I'm cellist Saul Daniel Kim, and you're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has been looking through those papers for us and joins us in the studio to tell us about what he's seen. Richard, hello. It's uh, good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. OK, so what's caught your eye for tomorrow? 
Well, new data has been released that shows what the average marriage age is for South Koreans as of 2021. Lee Jung-young's article in the national section of the Korea Herald has all the information. There have been some big changes over the past three decades. Okay, so tell us uh, more. Tell us more about uh, where the data comes from as well. The figures come from Statistics Korea, and the agency has been compiling data since 1990. One of the biggest changes over the years is that the number of women married for the first time in their 30s surpassed women married in their 20s. This is the first time this has happened since 1990. Out of around 155,000 first-time marriages this year, 49% of women were in their 30s, while around 45% were in their 20s. So in 1991, the average age of women getting married for the first time was 24.8. Mm. In 2021, it is 31.1. So a big change. Indeed. So Korean women are marrying increasingly later in life, it seems. Yes. Uh, and as you said, the average has now surpassed 30. What about men? The article says that since 2005, the number of men in their 30s getting married for the first time has been higher than men in their 20s. So there's no drastic change there. The average age has gone up, though. In 1991, it was 27.9, but in 2021, it was 33.4. Okay, that's interesting. So Korean men are uh, marrying older as well, but perhaps not as... uh, The rate isn't going up as quickly as for women. Uh, What else did the data show? Well, the number of marriages has drastically dropped over the past three decades. There were 400,000 marriages in the 1990s, 300,000 in the 2000s, and only 193,000 from 2011 to 2021. That's the lowest number since the data has been collected. Yes, and there is, of course, also a correlation to the nation's declining birth rate Mm. as well. It would be interesting to discuss the analysis of this data, the interpretation of it, but uh, I guess we'll have to leave that for another day (laughs) and move swiftly on to our second story. What else do you have for us today? Next is an article from the Lifestyle section of the Korea Times. Apparently, the Culture Promotion Advocacy Group Korea Image Communication Institute, or CICI, celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. Dong Sun-hwa sat down with Choi Jung-hwa, the group's founder and president, to talk about the changing Korea's cultural scene over the past 20 years. Okay, so walk us through the change then. Let's start with what the scene looked like 20 years ago. Sure. The article says that two decades ago, the fundamental element of Korea's identity was Han. Han refers to an emotion of unresolved grief, resentment and frustration. Mm. This is because in the early 2000s, the world mainly paid attention to South Korea when news about North Korea's possible nuclear development made the headlines. So there were concerns when South Korea was brought up. Right. So while uh, Korea does have a lot of sadness in its history, of Mm. course, uh, as you said, this talk of Han has become rather outdated now. What about now? Now it is a lot more positive. The fundamental element, the fundamental element of Korea's identity these days is hung, which means collective energy and utmost joy. Mm. This is because K-pop, K-drama, and other cultural content made in Korea have become the first thing that crosses people's minds when they think of the country. So Korean culture is drawing global attention with its bright and positive energy. Yes, I like that. Hung, I think that is a great word to describe the positive energy coming out of uh, (laughs) Korea nowadays and certainly shows that a lot has changed in the last 20 years. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we call it a day today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-woo, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.